So, Berto, we haven't done an episode in a long time, probably years, where we just do tougher bluff, where we talk about wow. research and in the form of true or false questions or tougher bluff questions. So in this right. episode, we're going to rattle off a lot of psychological research and we're going to test to see how stupid or dumb you are, Berto. What do you say? <laughs> I think it's a great idea. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Tougher bluff, Berto. Uh, that's tough. And my name is Umberto Castaneda, and I develop lights for lighting scenes, like in a podcast. Uh, tougher bluff. Toughish. <laughs> so, for those who don't know, who might be new to the podcast, Back in 2008, when we first started the podcast, I wanted to do a segment where we talked about psychological research or any kind of fact, and I quizzed the contestants or the co my co-hosts, Umberto and Lita at the time, and I threw it to Umberto and Lita, what are we going to call this segment? Because this is actually copied from a podcast called The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, and right. they, they call it Science or Fiction. And I was wanting to copy that. And so I, and I still listen to that, by the way, uh, they were actually pretty heavily influential on my motivation to starting this podcast in 2008. Uh, so I threw it to Umberto and, and Berto's really good with coming up with random things. And, he, and I was like, well, something kind of like maybe something bluff. Cause when you, when a, like a false is sort of like a bluff and, and like I play cards poker and there's a, there's a game that involves bluffing, but anyway. And then you said, well, how about tougher bluff? And I thought, no, that's that stupid. Sense. That doesn't make any sense. But it stayed. Okay, so Birdo, tougher bluff. In wealthy countries, men and women's personalities and preferences are more similar. So in wealthy countries, huh. men and women's personalities and preferences are more similar. Tougher bluff. That's crazy. I'm going to go... I'm going to go tough. Why? Because as you add more options for buying things and experiencing things, you average everything out, and so people start looking a lot closer, like the two Pareto curves start looking a lot closer to each other. Right. The two distributions, I mean. Yeah, that certainly is the, I don't know, the knee-jerk reaction that I have to this. Because you think, well, in more, in less wealthy countries, you think they're more traditional with their, with their gender roles. The right. man goes to work, the, man, the woman stays at home. But it's bluff. What? Yes. Researchers measured the personalities of 80,000 people from around the globe. In wealthy countries, there were more differences between men and women. Wow. Yeah. So Shocking. speculation with money comes the luxury to conform to society's expectations is mm. is one speculation. We don't know why this would be, but that's that's one of the speculations is that when you come from a a society where you have to scrape by, then it's like, well, look, we don't have time for gender silliness. Like hmm. uh we 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 have to survive, we got to get our jobs done and we don't we don't have the luxury of saying men are this and women are this because there's yeah. jobs to do and someone's got to do it kind of a thing. Right. But who knows? Yeah. Uh, and this actually is in line with a, a different set of research that shows that in hunter-gatherer societies that they've studied, that there is 
far less gender disparity and much more egalitarianism, particularly mm. in hunter-gatherer societies where there's a lot of resources, which is totally counterintuitive given the messages that we've been given by society that like primitive societies, you know, the men hunted and beat the woman over the head with a with a thing and and the, and the woman was routinely being abused because she had no power and i don't know at what point we taught ourselves that ridiculousness but that doesn't bear out in the data oh interesting it's a complicated thing but anyway yeah tougher bluff birdo in the lab rats choose heroin or meth over socializing in the lab uh, yes rats choose heroin or meth over socializing with other rats, tough or bluff? I'm going to go tough because it's a chemical addiction. They're not going to be able to just rationalize their way out of it. Uh, yeah. I mean, if we can't do it, we as in humans, I don't see how they could do it. Yeah. It's bluff. What? Yeah, you're, you're 0 for 2. Across oh, no. multiple conditions, including different drugs, different dosages, and the sex of the rat... The rats consistently chose social time over the drugs. Wow. The thing is, is we mammals, including ourselves, crave attachment and will sometimes turn to substances when we feel alone. So, you know, you were saying, well, humans don't seem to do it. And that is a sort of cart before the horse thing mm. where we tend, to, we, we tend to look at people who suffer from addiction who are isolating and depressed and you know, f distancing themselves from their family and friends. And, and it looks like drugs is dragging them away from us. But in all likelihood, for many people, they were emotionally dragged away from us long ago. Uh. And because of that isolation, they turned to substances, and then they really moved away from us, you know. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Man. <laughs> for two. Oh, for two. Tougher bluff, Birdo. U.S. organizations in financial decline are two and a half times more likely to hire an Asian-American CEO. Tougher bluff. U.S. Organi organizations <laughs> that are in financial decline uh -huh. are two and a half times more likely during the financial decline to hire an Asian-American CEO. Tougher bluff, Berto. Oh, my gosh. Okay. That's a really interesting one. I'm going to go tough, but I'm going to hang my head in shame as I say tough because... I could see it. I could see like maybe, maybe the stereotype is like, oh, you know these, you know these Asians, they don't mess around. So like, we need them to make some tough calls, and uh, you know our little white CEO here. It's it's good to pay him nicely, but right now, I don't want him to have to fire people. So yeah, let's get an Asian in here. I could see that. Um, I'm gonna go tough. If your organization was going down the tubes, would. You hire me as your CEO to pull you out of the out of the absolutely. <laughs> oh, except except that you would be too nice because you'd be like, well, like tell me about your feelings. How does it feel to be like? Uh, I actually need like like your dad or something. <laughs> the the irony is, I am actually good at math, and so are you, by the way. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it is tough. Researchers looked at five thousand CEOs over five decades and found that Asian Americans were hired much more often when the company was in a financial decline. Wow. Another study found that participants see Asian Americans as more self-sacrificing and thus a, oh better, a better choice during tough financial times. So it's not necessarily that they're good at math, but 
They're just less of a dick about their own salary, essentially. Right. And that kind of sucks because think about it. Like all those Asian Americans didn't have the opportunity to be CEOs for that same company before it was in financial decline. And now all of a sudden they do, but it's in financial decline. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Tougher bluff. People in religious countries. uh, Would you call Colombia a religious country? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. (laughs) People in religious countries are more generous with their money. Tougher bluff. More generous with their money. People in religious countries. Hmm. Interesting. Well, that's a funny question because um, I guess, is the United States considered a religious country? I would say on the spectrum, they're probably in the middle, is my guess. Okay. Okay. Because then you have countries like Sweden or the UK. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Good question. I'm going to go on a limb here and say no, but because I, I bet you there's a correlation in modern times between religious, the religious countries being a little bit less developed financially, and therefore people have to be tighter with their money, uh, even though they might actually have more mm, sort of religiously led uh, obligations towards tithing and things like that. They, they just may have less money to tithe. So I'm going to go, uh, your statement was that it was, so therefore I'm going to go I'm going to go tough. Like it is tough that in more religious, oh, sorry, I'm going to go bluff. In more religious, more religious countries, they donate less. Yeah. Uh, you're, it is bluff. You're right. But it is that there's no difference between religious oh, and non-religious okay. countries. So. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Similar generosity. All right. Tougher bluff, Berto. Because agreeable people care less about money, they tend to have less money and more debt. So this is a lot of things. Because agreeable people care less about money. They tend to, they have, tend to have more money. L- they tend to have less money. Oh, less money. And more debt. Oh, tough, and more debt. Tough, tougher bluff. So agreeableness is a personality trait of, of being agreeable. You know, you're, yeah. you're nice, you're, you're compassionate, you're caring, you listen, you're influenced, you know, you're, you're a nice person. Yeah. Uh, so, and they generally care less about money. So that is... That's a fact, according to research. And because of that, they have less money and more debt, tougher bluff. Because it's like, hey, Bob, can I borrow some money? I'm like, ah, I'm cool, of course. Like, I don't care about money. Here's some money. But then why do they get in debt? Are they like, well, because I don't care about money. I'm going to buy this stuff because it's cool because I don't care about money. Oh, I see. Yeah. Maybe. Hmm. I'm going to, I smell a rat. I'm going to go bluff. I'm actually going to think I'm agreeable. I don't think money is that big of a deal, but therefore I'm not actually so obsessed with having things. I'm like, it's okay. I don't have to have everything. I like your thinking, but you're wrong. You're one in three. It's tough. Researchers looked at 3 million people and found that agreeableness was associated with lower savings, more debt, and higher default rates. Oh my God. Yeah. That's crazy. Because wouldn't you say I'm an agreeable person? Yeah. But you also then maybe that was why you also I, give, I had so many problems with. Well, you also you know are pretty good at your job, but you also give a lot of money to people, and yeah, you, and you've been in debt a lot in your in your past. I, I know, and and you know, making lights isn't always profitable. But I'm saying like that might be my agreeable personality might be part of the reason why I had so oh. many money problems. I thought you were saying. 
the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I'm saying like, maybe that's why I had so many money problems. Totally. Well, yeah. you could imagine like when your uncle was asking you <laughs> right. for money and like, you yes, were. Yes, of course. If you were I don't less. Care about ag- money. Yeah. If you're less agreeable, you would have been like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I want to take a quick detour and talk about the Michael Jordan, <laughs> Michael Jordan documentary. Oh my gosh. What'd you think of it? I didn't care about football. I wasn't good at um, soccer. I wasn't good at it. I tried to be a goalie. I guess I was okay as a goalie because I had, I had decent reflexes and I was, you know, good at jumping in front of balls. <laughs> but, but I wasn't like great at it. And I, I was really not good at kicking the ball. Like I would like it would go every which direction. It was really embarrassing. I didn't like it. Um, I did like volleyball, but basketball was my basketball was my jam, uh, both literally and figuratively. And like, and me and a few friends, we we got into it and we started playing. And then by my by the time I was twelve, like basketball was it. You know, I had played it all the time. And so Michael Jordan, see, Michael Jordan was was a revelation. You know, it was like, oh my god, how are these things possible? This guy's floating on air. And me and all my buddies, we would try to do that. So that's how I would try to play. I would jump up and try to stay in the air as long as possible and wait till the last possible second to release the ball, which of course led to me missing almost every shot. But that's the way I tried to play it. Uh, and I, I just, yeah, I, I loved it. So that had a huge impact. Um, it was pretty much the only, the only sports star that I was in growing up, uh, that I was into growing up. So anyway, when you watch this documentary, does it tickle all those childhood dreams? It both it tickles all the childhood dreams. Second, and this is probably the first time I've revealed this on this podcast. I haven't always worked on windows, like on windows and lights and things like this, like really light fixtures. No, I haven't I mean, always. It's been, I, I, it's been twelve, 12 years. years so, yeah. yeah, twelve years, same job, no problem. But there was a time where I actually, unbelievably, I worked on a video game, a basketball video game. And not only that, I got to go, because I was working on a basketball video game, I got to go to see a playoff game when the Sonics were still a thing. And it was the one of the famous playoffs between the Bulls and the Sonics. And it was the one where, like, um, Sean Kemp and, uh, and uh, what's his name? They, 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 like, he lands on top of him. Uh, do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, Rodman is sitting there, and then like Kemp goes for a dunk. It was like pretty epic. Ninety six, um, I'm thinking ninety seven. Ninety six, I think. Yeah, it was so awesome. So uh, it wasn't just as a kid during the nineties. Oh man, I was obsessed. I was like devastated when he retired, then elated when he came back, and it was like this fairy tale where they went on to win another. Like so, yes, this this documentary. Because I've seen stuff before. It was all like the highlights, his highlights. There was that, they did an IMAX movie of his, stu- of his stuff. But I never heard some of these stories. And, and it's surprising because I was so into this. But, you know, how would I have known the stories? I, yeah. I didn't read trade magazines or anything. Well, and did you know that no- this isn't really a documentary? It's just him because it's, it's all approved by Michael. Like, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Which it so it's definitely, very biased, I'm sure. Yeah, it definitely has that thing, you okay. know? Yeah, well, but but a lot of the stories that they're going into about, about you know, all the other, Pippin. Like, I didn't know so much about Pippin. Yeah. You know, and I uh, uh, didn't know that much about Rodman. I didn't know he had one. And, and this just shows that I'm not, in general, like, the biggest 
uh, fan of basketball in that many fans of basketball would be appalled that I didn't know that Rodman had already won uh, uh, an the, NBA the Pistons. Uh, playoff. Uh, yeah. But the thing is that I didn't, as, as a kid and as an adult, I've never actually followed sports. You know, I, I don't know the names of everyone. I don't know. I don't watch all the games. It's just that Michael Jordan was on a whole other level. Yeah. So in the 90s, I followed it and all these things. So yes, I, I, I love watching those stories. I'm finding out a ton of stuff I had no idea about. It's great. Yeah, I. so I heard that this was the next Tiger King, that everyone was watching this. And I'm guessing a certain generation, uh, your age and a little younger. Because people my age, uh, Jordan came on the scene a little later, although I don't know, maybe not. Yeah. I don't know. I just remember people like you and my younger brother were really into pe- people like uh, Michael Jordan. Whereas, and I think the 90s, early 90s was a time when sports figures really became a thing. Like in the, yeah. in, in the 80s, you definitely had your stars, you know, Magic Johnson, these kinds right. of people. But it, But you didn't have posters and products and shoes and cartoons and interviews and constant media coverage like the way that Michael Jordan you know benefited from he came into stardom during a time when uh, it, it was per- he was it was a the perfect storm for that kind mm-hmm. of thing uh Nike and Spike Lee and I mean everything was just you know happening around him right then um the uh you know the popularity of hip hop was in the 90s and right. anyway so for me, I remember Michael Jordan kind of in the 80s, and I remember like his shoes started to become kind of popular. In fact, I played basketball too as a kid, and my basketball shoes were, I believe, the model of shoe just before Air Jordan. So mm. I had shoes that looked like a, like a, a proto- prototype for an Air Jordan. But yeah. it's just slightly different, but it doesn't have Jordan on the back. You know what I mean? That it doesn't have the ah. air. Anyway, but for me, this documentary is painful because the Sonics were good in the 90s. Oh. And, and yeah, Kemp, uh, Gary Payton, Shrimp, all those guys. Yeah. And I, I haven't watched a lot of NBA in my life, but I definitely watched it in from like 93 to 97. And there was one year where the Sonics had the, I, from my memory, I think it was 96, had the best yeah. uh, record in the NBA. Yeah, that's they the were, year. That's the year I went to the... Yeah, the Sonics were uh, expected to take the championship. We were, we were dominant. Yep. And the Bulls were like, okay, yeah, sure, they won a couple championships, but the Sonics this year are amazing. You know, it's like... Sure, New England Patriots, you know, they've won some, uh, you know, some uh, championships recently, <laughs> but, you know, they're not the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, just right. look at the Can- – so it wasn't like this – it was it was definitely assumed that the Sonics were going to trounce them. Right. And, and I believe the Bulls came into the playoffs, like, not looking good anyway. And then they just – completely destroyed us and it was so aggravating and then the sonics never had another year like that and then and but no one remembers that they just remember it was just another year that michael jordan dominated the nba (laughs) but but that's not my story my story is it was not their year (laughs) 
(laughs) And they lucked out or... Uh, the Sonics choked because they freaked out in in the playoffs. And so when I watch this documentary, they're not even mentioning the Sonics. I keep waiting yeah. for them to mention, but the, it's it's like not even on anyone's radar. And yeah. we lost the Sonics because freaking Starbucks guy sold them to Oklahoma. Yeah. And it's yeah. it the, this whole documentary. I'm just crying into my you know <laughs> into my nachos because I'm like. Because to me, Michael Jordan was like Tom Brady. Yeah. He, Michael, you know, uh, Pippen, and especially the worm, man. I hated <laughs> that guy. I mean, he. Yeah. they kind of show how bad of a sportsman he is. Yeah. But he is one of the most vile players that has ever played any sport, any of any, <laughs> any sport, anytime. He would flagrant flat foul people in a way that was like very dangerous. Yeah. He was completely like just foul mouthed. And like, so when I watch this documentary, I'm just, I hate all these people. Now it's kind of cool to see a document about the nineties and the NBA. It's interesting, all these behind the scenes, but I keep waiting for like the interview with like Michael Jordan about how, he was a jerk to people yeah. and how how does his wife feel about him? Yeah. yeah. And uh, what's the price that he had to pay to get there? I mean, they kind of talk about it. Basically it's just a massive highlight reel to aggrandize Michael Jordan and the bulls. That's, that's totally fair. And that's probably why I like it so much because I'm just sitting there fanboying. And by the way, Rodman, you don't disagree with you at all. But as a kid, as like a 14-year-old, because the thing is, I was never a good shot. But, you know, I just didn't have the hand-eye coordination. It just didn't. So a lot of times I would go and I'd have the moment. It was perfect. And I'd miss. It was so disappointing. But what I did have, I want to see if you can guess. What do you think? I had two things that I could do really well. What do you think they were? Boxing out. Yeah. And Basically, guess- and going for rebounds. Yeah. Like, because the thing is, I was super, super athletic in the sense of like, I had incredible endurance. And because I had been doing Taekwondo for several years, I could jump really well and really high. Oh. And and I had really long arms, you know, like monkey arms. So what happened was, I would be really fast. I wouldn't get tired. I would just like sit there. And so Rodman to me was sort of an inspiration. I was not a fowler, but... Like, just the fact that he was always there, always in the right place, always. So that, that was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, so unfortunately, for me, it's a, yeah, it's complete. Now, now to, to be fair, though, the Supersonics were my uncle, the one that, that, um, that uh, is not committed, that, what was killed, it? Him, that killed, himself. killed himself when I was a kid. He was an amazing basketball player, apparently. And he was tall, very, very good at basketball. And he loved the Supersonics. He had a Supersonics uh, banner and a thing and a stuff in his room. And that was there in his room forever. He had a little, one of those little basketball things, like on the wall, little ones with like little foam balls. Ugh. And so, yeah, there's a part of me that always thought, oh, the Sonic, even before I knew them, I was like, oh, the Supersonics must be really something. And then when I lived here, I agree with you. I, I had a lot of affection for the Sonics. Um, so, yeah. So I have one gripe of wrath, and then let's take a break. Okay. So 
here's my gripe of wrath, people. And I know a lot of you out there listening suffer from this condition. I'm going to call it frequent Mac screensaver disorder. <laughs> okay. So appa- I've never had a Mac, but apparently the default screensaver setting is five seconds because whenever whenever i'm I, i'm i'm in a room with someone that's they're using a mac laptop or i'm using a mac it quickly because it has that two phase where it it'll dim the light and then 10 seconds later it'll just turn off right yeah. the screen the screen will turn off and even if it's plugged in yeah it, it's you know, which you don't need people and what <laughs> and so what i would find is like people who have macs they're constantly touching the 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 pad, you know, the mouse pad, <laughs> because they need to reinvigorate the screen. I so can relate to this, right? It's and I it's can just totally relate. To and this. all I want to do is wring these people's necks and just be like, change the goddamn setting. Like no, but it's worse. It gets worse. So I have a Mac uh, for work because we make these lights, and then. But the problem is that my IT department configures it so that I cannot I cannot fully turn off the the feature because what they're trying to prevent is that you leave you're at a coffee place and you leave your MacBook on the table while you go get a coffee and you forget that your screen is on and then some nefarious individual comes so they do not let you turn off the screen the screen saver thing and if you're not plugged in it is worse because plugged in it takes a little longer not plugged in i don't know it's, it feels like 30 seconds and as soon as you see the screen dimming it's this mad rush they're like oh god i i gotta get it because if you don't i have to type in my long ass super secure password and touch this little thing on the side of the laptop too so that it it's a nightmare dude. i totally agree someone should do, someone should invent a little mechanical finger that just every 10 seconds just sweeps across that mouse pad for you because <laughs> most people with their computers, you know, if you're uh, reading it, you, I'll see people reading an article there yeah. and the article takes longer than 30 seconds or however, <laughs> and, <then pull> and <laughs> they have to constantly press the goddamn mouse pad. And I just yeah. want to, I just want to, it's just, it's annoying to watch, you know? <laughs> Because actually, I was on, I was on a Zoom call with a coworker of mine, and I didn't know that they some companies will lock this down, and maybe this is why she was suffering from this disorder. Is the the screen was next to her face, and so every once in a while, this her face would become de-illuminated, dark. yeah, dark, yeah. and then she would reach over, and it was distracting to me watching her get distracted. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. I'm here to tell you, people, you do not need a screensaver on your computer anymore. Those were because (laughs) CRTs would have burn-in that doesn't exist on your screen anymore. The only reason why your screen turns off is because of power, okay? And if you can't manually turn off your stupid screen, then you don't deserve a computer. So I have have (laughs) three screens right now I'm looking at. Not a single one... The screensaver is on. No. Why? No. Because I have a brain cell that tells me when I walk away from my computer, turn the screen off manually. Yeah. It's not no, hard listen, to do. Do you remember when we were recording our D&D episode two weeks ago or whatever? Yeah, that was driving me crazy. That my was, video you, would get, it's because of that because I'm sitting here paying attention, looking at my sheets, rolling the dice, and I would forget to touch the stupid thing. Yeah, I wanted, that was when I, I was using my Mac's uh, video camera. I forgot about that. You 
you were the one who sort of loosened the cap for that later meeting that I had on Tuesday where it was driving me crazy. I remember <laughs> yes. that now. I remember I wanted to, I, we were recording, but if we weren't, I would have been like, Berto, stop. Turn here. off the screensaver. Yeah. yeah. God. But yeah, we need the mechanical little mouse that just kind of occasionally. Luckily, now I'm using a non laptop camera, so it's not going to fall asleep. <laughs> yeah. I, I oh, and by the way, I bought the power pack because otherwise the battery would run out, right? So I have a little power pack plugged into the camera, which is right. hilarious because the battery thing opens up and I thought you had to have the battery lid open because I'm like, well, how else is the cable going to go? And I didn't realize that that little flap on, there's a little flap, a rubber flap on the cover that you can pull back so you can put the cable through it. Oh. I don't know if you <laughs> Did you look under the flap? I, I lifted the flap. <laughs> Did you lift the flap? What's in the flap? What's in the flap? <laughs> All right, let's take a break and get away from these inside jokes. When we get back, let's continue with actual content for this podcast. TMBs. In the form of, t- of tougher bluffs. What do you say, Bruno? Let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> All right, we're back from the break, Berto. If a screensaver were to try to convince people to become a patron of the podcast, what would it sound like? Hey, guys, I know you're just looking at the screen, but hey, I'm falling asleep. I'm falling asleep. I'm falling asleep. Oh, too late. I fell asleep. I'm going to wait for you to reactivate me. But while you reactivate me, let me tell you about a little podcast that you can support called Psychology in Seattle. You can go to Patreon, and when you sign up, you woke me up. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. But you're looking at the screen. You're not paying attention. Ah, I'm going to fall asleep. Gotta I'm asleep. It's locked. It's too late. So uh, anyway, support the Psychology in Seattle podcast at patreon.com. God, it makes my hands sweat just hearing that. T- <laughs> All right. Tougher bluff, Birdo. Contrary to popular belief, teaching children about computer programming doesn't actually improve their intelligence or school performance. Contrary to popular, popular belief, teaching your child about computer programming as they're a child, does not actually improve their intelligence or their school performance. Berto, what do you think? Improve their intelligence. Uh, I guess if they were taking an IQ test before they learned about computer programming and they took an IQ test after they learned about computer programming, I would not imagine that it would have increased their IQ necessarily, significantly anyways. As far as their school performance, I could imagine it would actually detract from their school performance because they're not expected to be programming at school and it's taking away from time that they need to be memorizing the stupid names of the rivers that they'll never need to know. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that it would be very beneficial to a whole category of children to learn that. So I'm going to go tough. It uh, doesn't. Yeah, right, tough. You are wrong. You are one for four. It is bluff. A meta-analysis of 105 studies found that teaching code improved intelligence really? and and school performance. That's right. Okay, well then, what the hell do I know? Apparently, I know nothing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, though. I'm glad because I think, I think it's great. People should learn coding. Yeah. Uh, I learned code, as you did, in, as young children, and we like to think we're smart. All right, tougher bluff. Because fiction books are used for escapism, like Harry Potter, people who read them are worse at reading social cues. Tough or bluff? Okay. Harry Potter? So, because fiction books are used to escape 
reality. Oh, so not just Harry, fiction in general. Fiction in general. Yeah. People who read them are worse at reading social cues. Okay. Tough or bluff? Interesting. Um, okay, so a few thoughts. I, I, I think people who read probably are better at reading social, social cues because they get more of the insight about... Because, you know, when you read, you get the mental process, which you never do in, in real life. You never hear someone explaining what they're thinking while they're looking at you. But when you read, you actually get all those little dynamics. But between fiction and nonfiction, actually, I'm going to go bluff. Like, I'm going to say, because fiction, you end up probably having more descriptive and more variety of characters, robots, aliens, fairies, dragons... And and you and you know how would you know if a dragon's upset? So you actually end up having to learn a lot more uh, it, implicitly about like okay, the dragon flapped its wings and it seemed upset, and so then that might make you more receptive to little changes in in people that might make you more. So I'm going to go bluff. It, it helps you. You're right. You're two for four, I believe. Yes. Researchers found that fiction readers scored somewhat higher on tests regarding the ability to read social cues. Aha. The other speculation that I would say, aside from dragons, is that fiction will talk about the inner thoughts of their characters. Yeah. And that might help people to mentalize others. Tougher bluff. For children, screen time harms sleep more than early school starting times. So this is a common thing that parents will worry about. You know, ki- kids, right. their screen time, and that's harming their sleep. Uh, so, for children, screen time harms sleep more than early early school starting times. Tougher bluff. Bluff. I'm going to go bluff because, oh, my God. Oh, talk about a gripes of wrath. Oh, this makes me so angry. I cannot tell you. I'm not a morning person. And if there are things, of the things that I hate the most in memory is waking up early to an alarm, groggy, having to go to school, half asleep. Oh, I hate it so much. So here's my thought process. Because the human sleep cycle does not work exactly to whatever time you set your alarm to, uh, you very likely might be waking up uh, at an off cycle, and it's going to hurt your your sleep the next night. It's going to hurt your daytime too and all these kind of things. Number one. Number two, because it's early, but you're still like interacting at night, having to do your homework, all these kind of things, you're going to end up getting less sleep and therefore less good sleep. So I'm going to go, it's actually, uh, it's bluff. It's the, um, it's the morning wake up times, the early ones that affect you more. Good. You're three for four. Yes! It's bluff. Researchers found that early school starting time had a much higher effect on sleep. Having said that, for each hour of screen time a child has during the day, the child has eight fewer minutes of sleep per night on average. So both have have an effect, but particularly early starting time. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I remember when I look back at high school, I thought there was something wrong with me. But I basically slept for the first three hours of school. Yeah. And, and, and I would actually sleep through lunch sometimes. Oh, like, I remember one time the, I got roused from my, from my nap, <laughs> and I got my lunch, and I started walking to the lunchroom, and someone was like, where are you going? I'm like, it's lunchtime. And they're like, no, you slept through lunch. 
<laughs> and I was like, God damn it. But, oh my God. But yeah, I was, I was, uh, just, and today to this, and everyone in my family were night owls. Like, yeah. I have to force myself to go to sleep at like two in the morning because yeah, yeah. if I don't force myself to go to sleep, I'll just stay up all night. But yep. man, in the morning, forget about it. I'm just like, ugh. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Tougher bluff, Birdo. Americans today prefer their politicians to play nice. Tougher bluff. Americans today prefer their politicians to play nice. Tougher bluff. Oh, man. Do they, Americans prefer their politicians to play nice. Um, this is a tough... Compared, uh, compared to previous times, so... Yeah, compared to previous times. Yeah. So this compared, is to the, compared to the 90s, one. compared to the 90s, yeah. today, Americans want politicians to play nice. Okay, this is a tough one, but I, I don't, I'm not saying tough yet. I'm just saying it's difficult because, because, like, I see people wanting that, like, saying... People should just, you know, why are they accusing each other of everything? Why are they being so mean to each other and stuff like that? But I don't know that they vote that way. So, but fine. I'm going to go tough. They they say they want that. No, it has to do with actual outcomes, not not self-report. Okay, okay, okay. Hmm. Well, then no. I'm going to go bluff because that doesn't seem to, that doesn't seem to be how it nets out in elections. Well, certainly not the discourse, because it's hard to know why people get elected, but it, it is, yeah. but it's tough. It uh, is. I think you're three and five now or something. Oh, I'm not sure. Man. But researchers looked at data from the 90s and today, and they found yeah. that in times when politicians were more nicer to each other, public opinion polls rated them higher. Hmm. So that's certainly not what, you know, we're telling ourselves. That's not the, that's not the narrative that we're saying. Yeah. Um, Researchers also found regarding Trump that diehard Trump supporters rated Trump more favorably when he was more civil. Okay. So, so even Trump supporters want Trump to be nice. Okay. Uh, but in the 90s, we valued it less, which is okay. totally counter to the narrative. And that's why we need research to show us reality instead of just using intuition. Yeah. On average, tougher bluff, on average, self-esteem peaks at the age of 29. Tougher bluff. What? No. That, that's a bluff. That is like a total bluff. I would almost say that anti-self-esteem peaks at the age of 29, meaning that, like, it might be that at the age of 29, you're the most insecure, um, my thinking is, and granted, this is from personal experience as well, but my thinking is... As you get older, you, you the world keeps confronting you with realities that previously you were like avoiding or whatever. Things like, um, I guess I'm not going to be in the NBA. Ah, damn it. But then maybe that's okay. Maybe it's okay to be happy with what I'm doing here. Whereas like in your 20s, you're like, ah, oh, why am I not in the NBA yet? Ah, so I'm going to go bluff. It is bluff. I'm not quite sure if the curve of self-esteem it lines up with what you're saying, but self-esteem is low when we're a young child, mm. and it's also low when we're older, so beyond 70 on average. So it basically steadily increases all the way to 70. It peaks mm. at 70. It peaks at 70. 
Okay. Yeah, and then it starts to decrease slightly, not much, oh. okay. uh, and and as we age from that point forward. So, generally speaking, our self esteem goes up as we age. So, okay. if you're 40, you can look forward to, on average, your self esteem being better in 10 years. But that's not, I mean, so so okay, so I I think that's that's in line with what I was thinking, which is that as you keep going and you have more experiences you start leveling out a little bit more. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, tougher bluff, Birdo. People who catch yawns from each other are more likely to donate to charity. <sighs> uh, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. I, I, I could buy this because I'm thinking that if you if you're the kind of person that is susceptible to someone else yawning, might mean, oh, you're going to hate this one. That they're more empathetic. <laughs> no, I mean that, that's that's so, that's the hypothesis. Okay, so they higher higher empathy, therefore they might feel more for others and want to donate more. So I'm going to go tough. Yeah, I tricked you again. It's bluff. Ah, oh! uh, research found that people who are susceptible to catching yawns are no more likely to donate oh, okay. to charity. Okay, so maybe it's a physiological response, not an empathy thing. Okay, yeah. <laughs> tougher bluff. Allowing teens to drink alcohol at home will encourage more responsible drinking habits. Tougher bluff. You know, this is a common right, parental right. strategy of just like, well, you know, if they're going to drink, I'd rather have them drink at home because then they can become more responsible. They'll Because this is, I remember hearing this, it's like, which is totally not true, but I remember hearing this notion when I was a kid and, and in my 20s of like, well, you know, in France and Italy, they just let their kids drink alcohol at home at dinner and they don't have alcoholism over there. Every, <laughs> whereas in the United States, we have all this problem with yeah. alcoholism yeah. because we we have this puritanical idea about alcohol. So allowing teens to drink alcohol at home will encourage more responsible drinking habits, tougher bluff. So I'm going to go bluff in that, if we leave it at that surface level, and, and, and this is from my experience, because, uh, and I used to say this too, but I, I said it in a different way. I still say it in a different way. I grew up in Colombia. I started being offered a champagne at like Christmas when I was nine, like a little glass of champagne and stuff like that. But I don't think that was the problem. So maybe that part is where, if, if we're just talking about that, maybe that's okay. But like as early as 11 or 12, we were drinking hard alcohol like crazy because whenever there was a party, we would have hard alcohol. When we had a retreat, we would have hard alcohol. In front of your parents? What? No, I guess it was not in front of the parents. But, well, that's what well, the question it, it was is. In front of, sorry, it was in front of the parents by the time I was 14. Okay. But by the time I was 12, I think if I remember right, my first blackout blackout drunk experience on rum was when I was 14 years old at a retreat, at a school retreat. Yeah. I'm trying to understand how you're relating this to the tougher bluff. Allowing... Because I'm saying like there's huge alcoholism problems in the youth in Colombia. So, and, and they were exposed to alcohol young and like, you know, stuff. So I, I'm going tough. Uh, so I'm going bluff. Yeah. It's bluff. Yeah. It's a myth that yeah. allowing it. And it's hard to know exactly what's happening, but you could totally imagine a situation where a kid is it, drinking is normalized to them. And yeah. so, whereas another kid where it's not normalized, maybe it's, you know, it's complex. Anyway, tougher bluff. Older people are less superstitious. 
For example, spilling salt brings bad luck. Tougher mm. bluff. Older people are less superstitious. Tougher bluff, Birdo. Okay, so I think this might vary culturally, but the way my think my thought process here goes like this: When you're a kid, it's really hard, especially the younger kids, really hard to distinguish uh, reality from make believe. So um, I could see I could see you believing things more deeply, but the flip side is that I, I, you haven't had as much time to make invalid correlation correlations because you haven't had that many experiences so i could actually see the older folk especially in more superstitious cultures and things like this that therefore that it's encouraged but they, they had so many more experiences that they start like pattern forming all over the place and like you know i could have sworn that that one time i saw that one person and then this happened and so i will never put salt on my nose again like i could see that happening more as you get older and, and and so I'm gonna go. Uh, which was it that was the tough that they're older has the more superstition? Older people are less superstitious. Oh yeah, no, I'm gonna go bluff. Older people are more superstitious. Right. It's tough. It's the opposite. I keep getting you because I think Parents. that that is a cultural notion that's out there. I mean, certainly <sighs> for me, I'm just like, well, older people are more crotchety and they're more like into their rigid thinking and, <laughs> but. Research shows that older people are less superstitious, and okay. it's the young people that are superstitious. Uh, we could speculate maybe experience teaches them that superstitions are silly. Who knows? Or generational. Maybe young people today are more exposed to superstitions mm-hmm. in a way that older people weren't. Who knows? Tougher bluff, 7% of boys and 5% of girls report they have been cyberbullied by other kids. Oh, no, no. They have cyberbullied other kids. Tougher bluff. Okay. So seven percent of boys and five percent of girls report self-report. Yes, I cyberbullied another kid. Tougher bluff. Sadly, I'm gonna go tough because I mean I don't think it's a majority of kids cyberbullying. Oh man, though that's no, 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 because because uh, yeah, no, actually, no, no, that's a bluff. It's sadly much higher than that. It's tough. It is sadly that. It's but, good. It's actually good that it's tough. Yeah. But, but it's sad is, that it's that much. It's self-report, but anyway. Yeah. But I, the, I, the, sorry, the reason I thought it might have been higher is because it's so easy to be mean online. So I thought, you know, like how many trolls yeah, we see and stuff. But, but what's the line between mean and cyberbullying? Sure. sure. Uh, tougher bluff. To increase your satisfaction in your romantic relationship. It's more effective to empathize with your partner's negative emotions than with their positive emotions. Tougher bluff. So if you want to improve your romantic relationship and you only have so much empathy to go around, then it's better to empathize with their negative emotions, like when they're sad and angry, than to, than to empathize with their positive emotions. Tougher bluff. Yeah, actually, I'm going to go tough on this one because I can imagine that, you know, if they're already like happy, like, oh my gosh. This football game is so amazing. Uh, and you pile on. Oh, yes, it is amazing. That's certainly going to draw you a little closer, you know, strengthen the bond. Uh, but it's sort of like the easy work. But if they're like, oh, I had the worst day at work today. And you're like, yeah, yeah, join the club. That's going to, that's not going to strengthen that bond as much. And they needed more assistance there. They needed more togetherness. So I'm going to go 
Tough. I keep getting you. It's bluff. Oh, God damn it. Now, <laughs> come on. But it, it makes total sense what you're saying. That's yeah. what I would have thought. But that's why we need research. Research yeah. shows that empathizing with any emotion helps the relationship. But, oh, okay. So it's even. Well, no. But okay. five times more effective, five what? times to empathize with your partner's positive emotions. Five yeah. times? Yeah. So it's it, it definitely people out there empathize with your partner's negative emotions for Holy sure. moly. But what this tells us is that <sighs> empath, empathy is not just about negative things. That we really need to, especially in light of this research, emphasize the importance of empathizing with positive emotions. Like, wow, wow you're really happy right now. I'm happy for you. I mean, think about yourself, Berto. You're really happy. You're 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 elated. You you got your camera to work. You you <laughs> you got your microphone to work, and you tell someone like, "Oh my God, I finally got it to work," and someone's like, "Huh, that's nice." Like it hurts. Yeah. Like you, you want someone to recognize with no, you. No, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Like you know, we p- put all this rehearsal time. We play our show. We play our hearts out. What do you guys think? How, how were we? Yeah, it's fine. You guys played. Yeah. Oh, cool. yeah. It it, it cool. it's hurtful. Uh, let's just do a couple more here. Tougher bluff, Berto. Five percent of U.S. teens have suffered at l- at least one concussion. Tougher bluff. Five percent oh of U.S. teens have suffered at least one concussion. Five percent of current <sighs> current teens, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Five. So not like you seen. and me, but kids no. kids these days. Kids these days. By the time more. they're a teenager, they've suffered at least one concussion, 5% tougher bluff. I'm going to go bluff. It's higher than that. Because yeah, it's of, a lot higher. Yeah. Uh, 20% have suffered at least one concussion, yeah. and 5% have suffered two or more concussions. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it, has it increased, by the way? Uh, I don't, I didn't, I don't oh. know that research. It's probably decreased, honestly, because... Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. for me, I... I, I was never diagnosed because every time I had my my bell rung, as we called it, yeah. I never went to the doctor because no one – when I was a kid in the 70s and 80s, if you had a concussion, you didn't go to the doctor. What's the doctor going to do? Yeah. Uh, so I never in went fact, to the doctor. In fact, there's a song about it, right? Three little monkeys were jumping on the bed. One fell down and broke his head. Mama called the doctor. What did the doctor say? Just stop jumping on the bed. <laughs> yeah. That's the entire – medicine profession opinion right just don't jump on the bed i can think of like 10 moments when i probably had a concussion jeez uh and there were probably more than that i mean when i was a young child four or five years old me and my friends developed this game where we would smash our heads into each other (laughs) oh my god what are you rams well what we did was it was like like sometimes people play bloody knuckles where yeah I played that too yeah so if you don't know you hold your fist in place and your friend smashes it you you punch <laughs> the other person's hand and you keep going back and forth or another game is that we'd play as kids is you would you would have two fingers and you could slap the person's arm as right. hard as you could with two, as hard as you c- could with two fingers it's hard to it's hard to really yeah. hurt someone to smack him with two of your fingers but. If you got good at your technique, you could really hurt someone. And over That's time, who gives up first loses. Right. And so we, at the age of four, we randomly came up with this game: was whoever gives up on the headbutting game. And I remember 
being hit in the head so hard that all I could see were stars. I remember, oh like, my god, like dude. someone headbutting me so hard. I, we were we were probably sitting in J.C. Penney, just, oh. and my parents probably just watched us and thought it was hilarious. Oh my god! But that yeah, hurts to think about football, slip and slide, falling out of trees, falling off of <sighs> ping ping pong tables, particularly <laughs> particularly football. I I probably had countless concussions. Honestly, anyway. Oh, no. Tougher bluff, Berto. Kids who are young for their age are less likely to be confident in school and are less likely to go to college. Tougher bluff. Kids who are young for their grade. Sorry, what did I say? For their grade, yeah. Uh, kids who are young for their grade. So in Seattle, yeah. typically kids will start kindergarten at the age of five where they turn six halfway through yep, yep, their yep. year. Well, what it, some kids turn uh, ter, just turn five – when they start kindergarten. So that's young for your grade. Yeah. Right? So kids who are young for their grade are less likely to be confident in school and are less likely to go to college than kids who start school at a, you know, six months later or whatever. Tough or bluff, Berto? Total, total tough. I, I was definitely suffering from this. I was too young for my grade. I was struggling. I hated it. I had to have a tutor. This was in second grade. So wait, um, you, did you start kindergarten at the age of four? Because you're like your birth, your birthday's in January. Yeah. So that mean, means you, that be, means yeah. you started kindergarten like eight months early. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be. Uh, Why? I don't know. I, I just I was and so they and they so when I got to Columbia, they had to pull me back a grade. Yeah. Because I couldn't handle it. But so that means you must have been four, like. That might mean you were four and a half when you started kindergarten. That's insane. Might be. It might be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're right. It's tough. They found that 58% of teenagers who were older than most of the students in their grade enrolled in college uh, compared to just 52%. Oh, okay. so, yeah. so the older kids, 58% of them went to college and the younger kids, 52% of them yeah. Went to college. Yeah. Right. Just based on the fact that they went to school uh, earlier, which makes total sense. And this has always driven me crazy because parents aren't told this and schools either are, don't, they're not told this or they don't follow it. It's like, why? Of course, we would understand if you put a kid that's three Mm -hmm. years old into kindergarten, that's going to be a problem. They're yeah. not developmentally, they're, they're, they're smaller, they're immature, they can't self-regulate as much. So we all understand right. that there is an effect of having a kid that's too young going into school is going to have a negative effect. Most of us can intuit that. But somehow when it comes to kindergarten for people that are on the borderline where you know their, their birthday is in the summer and yeah. they, could go to, they could go to kindergarten this year or they could go to kindergarten Next year, you know, it's according to the school district's rules, it's optional to the parent. Somehow there's this assumption. It's like, well, it doesn't matter. In fact, maybe they'll get a jump on things because (laughs) they will learn faster because, you know, but it's like, no, 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 (laughs) no. You know, not true. Research What about Doogie Howser? You know, genius doctor. Right. I think that's the mess. And plus, you're asking parents to evaluate their own kids maturity level and most parents because they love their kids will say things like well my kid is my kid's awesome my kid's gonna do great you know and 
without being more objective about it, like, no, your kid is not. <laughs> right. <laughs> your, your kid is normal, and your kid is... And the difference between a five-and-a-half-year-old and a, a five-year-old is, like, a big deal. It's right? a big deal. And, the, and if you think about percentage of one's life, a five-and-a-half-year-old is what? Like, yeah. Like... Eight percent older than the person who's five years old, <laughs> right? So that's a big deal. That's like looking at someone who's ten as opposed to someone who's eleven. You know, there there right. there are differences <laughs> there on average, right? So anyway, having said that, plenty of kids can start school early and do great, and plenty of kids can start late and do terrible. It's just averages yeah. that we're talking about. All right, Birdo, that is the end of the episode. Tougher bluff. I'm going to go with tough, sadly. (laughs) Everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it.